Welcome, everybody, to a very special Tennessee Holler live stream. I am Holler founder Justin Canoe. We're tnholler.com is where you can find us at the TN Holler on Twitter and Facebook. We appreciate all the support you all have given us, and please keep it coming. We are very pleased to welcome the candidates from House District 97 on the Democratic side over in Memphis. Gabby Salinas, Alan Creasy, Clifford Stockton, and Ruby Powell Dennis are running for the state house seat that is being left behind by Jim Coley. Hi, everybody. First of all, in general, we can do a, a hello wave to everybody. Uh, why don't we get right into it and let's go around and take about 60 seconds for introductions from each of you. Ruby, why don't we start with you? All right. Can everyone hear me okay? Uh, good evening, yeah. everyone. My name is Ruby Powell Dennis, and I'm proud to be running for state representative for District 97. Um, if you are, this is my first time meeting you. I'm running because I'm a mother of two little ones, an 18-month-old and a three-year-old. I'm a former elementary school administrator. And because this is an open seat, I felt that this was a critical time in our district where we not only needed to ensure that we had leadership in Nashville that re reflects the changing demographics of our district, but also someone who grew up in a working class family who knows what it's like to not only have to put herself through school, to raise a family in our district, but to also be critical in terms of helping build the infrastructure we need so that we continue to remain a district where people love to live, work, and play. Um, in addition to, of course, being a mother and an administrator, I have substantial experience working in change management, managing multi-million dollar budgets. So I'm proud to be running and, and asking for your vote to head to Nashville and make sure that our interests are represented. Thank you for being with us tonight. Okay, awesome. Thank you, Ruby. Clifford, let's go to you next. Good evening, everyone. My name is Clifford Stockton III. I'm a Democratic candidate for the Tennessee House of Representatives District 97. It's my honor and pleasure to be here on this stage uh, and discuss the issues of our community. The pillars of our campaign are founded on education, public safety, criminal justice reform, development, economic development and mobility, including Medicaid expansion. As a nurse and educator, my wife and I know what it's like to be on the front lines. As a family man and concerned member of our society, I check off several boxes for a system and a government that is not serving me and our community members. I am running for equity, quality education, Medicaid expansion, and I'm running for the future of District 97, so it does not have to wait another 26 years to see progress and change. My name is Clifford Stockton III, and I'm running to be your Democratic nominee for State House District 97. I will flip this seat from blue, not just for me, but for you. Thank All right, you. thank you very much. And Gabby Salinas, how about you? Hi, everybody. My name is Gabby Salinas, and I'm a scientist, a three-time cancer survivor, and a 23-year resident of District 97. And I am running because I want to make sure that everybody in our community has the same opportunities that I had. My story is a story of success and happiness because of the love and support that I got from members of our community in District 97. People that have my story don't make it without their community. Uh, I came to District 97 when my family was homeless and it was a church in District 97 that offered us a home and took care of us when my father died and my mom was left in a wheelchair. And I want to make sure that whatever your circumstances are, you will have a chance to make it here in Tennessee. Thank you very much. And last but not least, Alan Creasy. 
Uh, very nice to be here and, and so so proud to be uh, here amongst some really great, amazing candidates. Uh, my name is Alan Creasy, and I am a Democratic Party activist. Uh, over the over the last um, decade, I've knocked on uh, literally tens of thousands of doors uh, trying to help uh, other Democrats get elected across uh, across this county and across the state. Uh, in 2018, uh, I was proud to be the first Democrat to run for this district in uh, 16 years. We outperformed. Uh, we did a really amazing and came within five points of flipping this district. I asked uh, simply for the opportunity to, to finish what we started. Uh, I asked that uh, uh, we uh, continue moving forward and that we continue um, uh, uh, moving towards issues like expanding Medicaid, uh, education, uh, and, 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 uh, and fighting predatory lenders. So thank you so much for your time and thank you for being here tonight. Okay, fantastic. Well, Alan, let's stick with you for a minute. Right now at the top of everyone's minds is obviously the global pandemic we're living through. Governor Lee was slow to shut down, quick to open up, has failed to impose a statewide mask mandate while forcing students and teachers back to school in person, despite our virus spike being one of the worst in the country. What do you think Governor Lee should have done differently? And do you think students should be back at school in person given the current situation? And everybody will have a chance to answer. But let's start with you, Alan. I think uh, when it comes to uh, pandemic, this has been a, a, a huge failure at all levels, and it's been a huge case of, of, of absolutely just passing the buck. President Donald Trump um, uh, didn't have the backbone to ad address this issue, so he passed the buck to the governors. Governor Lee uh, did not want to uh, deal with uh, certain voices in his own party uh, who uh, believe that this uh, pandemic is some sort, some sort of imaginary uh, entity. And so we passed the buck to county mayors. And uh, unfortunately, no one had the backbone to stand up and say that you know, we, needed to, um, we needed to act differently for, for a few weeks and a few months in order to, to deal with this uh, really horrific situation. I'm really afraid. I'm, and I'm really afraid, not for myself, um, but I'm, I'm afraid for um, uh, every single school teacher and every single student uh, poised to go back to uh, Bartlett City Schools and across the state. All right. I'm, I'm not going to try to cut you off, but I'm just going to keep it moving a little bit here. Uh, Gabby, how about you? What do you think about Governor Lee's response? And should kids be back at school and should he have imposed a mask mandate? Yeah, so I think I'm the only uh, candidate that has uh, any experience with infectious diseases. Um, my, I'm pursuing my PhD in pharmaceutical sciences uh, in infectious diseases. I specifically work with malaria. Um, so I know how easily things can get out of hand. Um, the governor waited too long to shut down. Um, that was irresponsible. The fact that we don't have a mandatory mask at this point in the pandemic when community spread is going on like crazy, um, it's irresponsible, uh, it's amoral. Um, and we need to do something about it. He's just called today another special session um, for August 10th, and I hope that he takes action then, and I hope that it's not too late. Uh, regarding schools, I don't think we should open. Uh-oh, she froze on me. Cliff, let's move on to you. Do you think they should be back in person, and do you think there should be a mask mandate, and how do you feel about the governor's response overall? Well, thank you for the question. I think the governor's response overall lacked leadership as it related to being able to impose a mask mandate and waiting too late to close. Um, we lost lives. We really lost lives here in Shelby County. Um, and we 
have many more affected uh, that shouldn't have been if we'd have imposed those measures sooner uh, and not been so quick to open up. Um, I was in a school building uh, when uh, the order to close from Superintendent Ray came in, and I'm excited that uh, my Shelby County School student and other Shelby County School students will be able to attend virtually, um, and I'm excited about that process. Uh, more or less, we need to follow the data. We need to use uh, research-based approaches, and we need to make sure that the leadership um, in the science uh, backgrounds and fields are making the calls and decisions um, that we used to open schools and that we used to impose those types of mandates and mass for public safety. Great. And, and Ruby, same question to you. Certainly. So the Shelby County Health Department, the CDC and who have issued uh, guidance months ago, actually to schools and school districts around the country, indicating that schools are not safe to open for students and teachers. And our leadership has received that guidance and they've had teams of people around them to talk them through that for the last several months. And so at this point, it's simply a choice that our governor has made and he'll have to live with the repercussions of that. I think it's important that people go out to vote, understanding that our leadership has had all the information and all the science and data that they needed to make the decisions and they have have made their decision accordingly. Um, no, schools are not safe to reopen. There's lots of data, both in the hands of system leaders, school leaders, um, you know, anyone in education at this point can get their hands on that same data. And unfortunately, our school, you know, our leadership in the state has opted to move forward. At this point, I offer lots of prayers and hope, and I am lifting up the educators and principals who started opening their buildings as of today to try and keep our students and teachers safe. And I think at this point, it's really imperative that we simply elect leadership that listens to science because the current leadership we have got the data they needed to make the right decision and chose not to. Okay, great. Gabby, we lost you there for a second. We heard most of what you said though. Thank you for joining us back again. And uh, we're gonna move on to the next question here. <clears throat> Another big issue, especially in Memphis is police reform and the Black Lives Matter protests. The state legislature failed to do anything about it when they were there. And despite some empty words about the late John Lewis, they've done little to support the things he stood for. Clifford, let's go to you. What are, you some, what are some police reforms you'd like to see enacted at the state level and how would you try to convince these Republicans that you're going to be joining and attempting to work with to support it? Absolutely. I think that's a great question. We have to focus on making sure we're re using research-based practices. Um, there are research-based programs that uh, tackle and train on implicit and, and explicit biases and help address the reaction times that police are having and help us make sure that we are investing in our police our state police and our local police, uh, that they have the resources and the education that they need to interact in a safe way with our community members. You know, I think Black Lives Matter have a, has a point. We, we need to make sure that we are um, having a conversation about how often at black and brown people are treated differently by the police. And we have to be able to address that head on with education. And we have to make sure from a state level, we are working across the aisle so that legislators can see the value in investing in our current law enforcement officials and making sure that they're prepared for any situation that they come in front of. Uh, Alan, let me move to you. Uh, again, Black Lives Matter protests and police reform. And also as a part of the question, you know, the conversation about defunding the police, I'm wondering where you stand on that. And Clifford, we can come back to you for that too. Well, I, I, I was proud, I was proud, uh, many years ago, but, uh, 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 to stand with Black Lives Matters activists and uh, and and to fight uh, for uh, uh, criminal justice reform uh, far far before I think um, uh, so many folks in my complexion uh, were were out there doing so. I believe it, it is time to uh, definitely uh, uh, think about how we 
uh, how we allocate funds. Um, when, when we uh, are underfunding education and uh, placing funds uh, in the hands of a, a very militarized police force, we're not we're not making ourselves more safe. In fact, we're we're doing so. Uh, we're making ourselves less safe, not only for the 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 the, co the common person, um, um, no matter what their complexion, but also we're we're making police officers less sa less safe because we we are uh, uh, essentially uh, making it where um, it, it is an adversarial role between uh, uh, police force and and the, the citizens they're supposed to protect. Okay, thank you, Ruby. Question for you. Uh, same question about the protests and something that you are hoping to see the state legislature enact to help adjust the way our police behave in this country, in this state, and the way it interacts with the community and also, you know, is defunding a part of that? Yep. So I'll start with the end in mind. I think that there does need to be some reallocation. The militarization of our police departments is not serving our community. Instead, it's making Americans, you know, fearful uh, and relying on the police as a means of like navigating conflict and not uh, encouraging us to be in community. So I do think there's an opportunity. And I mean, that's not unique to this movement, right? We are going to be facing some budgetary choices because of this pandemic. And so we can't simply continue to fund things at the same level. Uh, when we know that we are actually going to have to make some different choices around social services, period. So I think that we do need to look at the police. They can't be uh, just, you know, not a part of the conversation around, uh, you know, reallocating resources because there'll simply be other places where we'll need more money to get us out of this pandemic and to save lives. The other thing I'll say is about the Black Lives Matter movement. It is just another iteration of the fight for African-Americans to be seen as full citizens and to receive full protections in this country. It has only been 52 years that we have been full citizens under the Constitution of the United States, thanks to the Civil Rights Acts of the 1960s. And I think that progress is not locked in. I think when we hyper-focus on this moment as though it is unique to our uh, country's history, we do it a disservice and we do the people who served, like my parents. I'm a descendant of the Deacons of Defense. It is a group of people who served in Louisiana, providing protection to civil rights leaders as they travel through Southeast Louisiana. I think it's a continuation of the work that African-Americans have been doing in this country for hundreds of years around making sure that we are safe, fully participative citizens that are protected under the laws of the land. Thank you, Ruby. Gabby, same question to you. I'll just repeat it for you. Um, basically, what sort of state level police reform would you like to see enacted and is defunding a part of that equation? So I believe that we need to divert funds to uh, programs that are community based. Um, and at the state level, I believe that I'm the only person that went to Nashville to advocate uh, for Governor Haslam to veto HB 2315 which was a racial profiling bill uh, that targeted specifically people of color, brown and black people. Um, so number one, we need to overturn that bill. Uh, number two, I'm on the uh, board of Alliance Healthcare Services. Um, and there's one program there that we were the leaders in the nation of. Um, it's called Crisis and it's a diversion program where people that are in mental crisis are taken to a treatment facility instead of being taken to prison. So I would love to see us fund more programs like that in collaboration with uh, the police department, but uh, not funding people, not putting people into the judicial system. Um, in on the same vein, we need to divest from prisons that are for profit. 
uh, specifically core civic. And that is something that we can do at the state level. Well, you just beat me to my next question, Gabby, and I'm going to stick with you because there's another part to it. But speaking of reform with many Tennesseans, particularly people of color, currently serving sentences for nonviolent marijuana crimes, drug crimes, seems any criminal justice reform would have to include some form of marijuana decriminalization and legalization. Do you support legalizing medical marijuana or even recreational? Why or why not? And then you've already answered this part, but for everybody to answer as a subset, will you support the push to abolish private prisons? Gabby, let's start with you. Yes, I covered the last part of uh, your question already in my first answer. Um, and the evidence is clear. I'm a scientist. I know medicinal marijuana has had really uh, good outcomes when it comes to treating epilepsy, uh, Charlotte's Web uh, specifically. Um, and when it comes to recreational use, we really need to decriminalize it. And this is an example of uh, where the Tennessee government has had overreach into our local government. Um, asked a bill that would decriminalize marijuana here in Shelby County. And, you know, the state government overreached and said we couldn't do that. Got it. Okay. And Alan, let's go to you. How do you feel about recreational, medicinal, legalization, and private prisons? Uh, well, in, in respect to private privatized prisons, I think that's something we can absolutely move uh, towards uh, divesting from. Because not only is it is it uh, is it terrible for for those incarcerated, but it in fact makes us less safe. Uh, these uh, these prisons have uh, proven to have higher rates of recidivism, and therefore, uh, when uh, when more folks are uh, convicted, they're more likely to to uh, commit crimes uh, once released. When it comes to marijuana, yes, we need uh, medical marijuana. Yes, we need to move towards decriminal decriminalization of uh, of, of uh, marijuana. We need to ensure that uh, the state. Uh, uh, allows uh, Memphis government and Shelby County government to do uh, to, to practice local government uh, on these issues. But for more than anything else, we need to actually move uh, to, uh, to be on a pathway to eventually legalize marijuana, legalize recreational marijuana. It's uh, un unbelievable to me that in 2020, um, we are still um, uh, dealing with the, the effects of, of, of prohibition uh, in, in, uh, and towards that particular, uh, particular drug. So Alan, that was a yes on recreational Gabby. I just want to ask you before I move to Ruby and Clifford on recreational, have you figured out where you stand on that just yet? Uh, yes, I'm in favor of, uh, legalizing and that's going to take a partnership between state and federal government. You guys all just went blank on me for a second. <laughs> Are you there? Mm -hmm. Yes, I yeah. hear you. You're back. Okay. Yes, um, I said. I said yes. We need to move uh, to decriminalizing and legalizing recreational marijuana, and then okay, that be a partnership between the state level and the federal level. Okay, thank you, Ruby. Same question to you. How do you feel about uh, recreational medical marijuana and private prisons in general, and as a part of a bigger criminalization or criminal justice reform? 
Yes. So we definitely need to move away from private prisons. Um, I grew up not too far from Angola, which is a very famous prison in Louisiana. And it's all firsthand how we utilize prison labor for entertainment and to provide goods and services. And almost all the individuals incarcerated there were black men. And so, yes, we need to move away from private prisons. Short answer. In terms of the legalization of marijuana, whether it's for medicinal purposes or recreation, I have lots of questions. So a lot of the time we sell people on the benefits of it, but we don't actually talk about what are the repercussions of once it is legalized. First, I would want to see socially equitable programs that prioritize at, you know, marginalized communities so that they can actually get marijuana licenses. Right now in the state of Florida, where it is legal, you have to have vertical integration, which means you got to own it from seed to sale, basically. And so those marijuana licenses are going for $55 million each. Two licenses are currently for sale for $95 million each. I don't know anyone who has that kind of money or capital. Secondly, we'd have to actually change banking regulations to allow for people who do business with cannabis, you know, you know, owners, businesses to legally be able to have money in the bank. So there's a lot of things we actually need to take into consideration. And finally, I lived in Colorado once it legalized marijuana for medicinal purposes. I did not like to see dispensaries all over the place. I saw people smoking marijuana where children were around. They started to raise questions about marijuana during pregnancy. And so Finally, we had school districts that did not still have the that did not get the appropriate school funding, even though Colorado was busting at the seams in terms of additional revenue. Why? Because the student funding formula was still broken. So once that money started to come in, it actually didn't trickle down. There was no trickle down economics. So I have lots of questions because when I look at Florida, Illinois and Colorado, I am not convinced that we've seen one state with best practices. And I want to make sure we get it right here in the state of Tennessee. I do support it, but with lots of questions, and I want to make sure there's strong legislation that doesn't prioritize corporate boards and make rich people more rich. Thank you. Clifford, same question to you about marijuana criminalization, decriminalization, legalization, and also about private prison abolishment. I believe we need to abolish private prisons. Um, too often and not so long ago um, do we see um, slavery as uh, it's just a, such a reminiscent feature of uh, private prisons. And we want to make sure that we are um, investing in the people that we are hoping to uh, rehabilitate. And that means offering programs and that means making sure there are sanitary conditions. Um, we see not too far from here what happened in Parkman Prison. And we see uh, the things that uh, transpire um, in, in not just public prisons, but private prisons as well. We need to make sure that we're focused on uh, rehabilitating people and allowing an opportunity for uh, growth um, and and, and, and clearing the history uh, that is their criminal past. Uh, focusing in on meta, medical marijuana, um, we need to decriminalize um, and make medical marijuana available in the state of Tennessee, not just uh, from a point of revenue and not just making sure that there are opportunities uh, for the first group of population to be able to participate in the license process and to participate uh, in the entire process. But we also need to make sure that we are focused in on um, maintaining the way uh, the, the proliferation of medical or recreational marijuana uh, would impact our tourist industry, how it would impact our community and our neighborhoods. Uh, we want to make sure that if we do go down that pathway, we're focused in on uh, doing it the right way um, and that we are giving groups that have traditionally been disenfranchised opportunity to participate uh, in those processes as well. Um, and that does include uh, banking practices for the underbank. And so we want to focus in on making sure that if we're going to look at what we're going to cut in uh, a pandemic, let's look at what we can add to create revenue for our state and make sure that there, uh, those investments are happening in a proper way uh, so that Shelby County and Memphians are benefiting. Um, and the, the federal government in partnership with us um, can move towards creating a, a more broad atmosphere where medical and recreational marijuana, marijuana is um, 
something nationally we can focus on uh, okay. making. Sorry to cut you off there. Thank you for that uh, elaborate answer. Ruby, back to you. Let's talk about education for a second. You have strong roots in the education space. What are some ways you believe education in Shelby County needs to be reimagined if, if you do at all? And what are your feelings about Republican efforts to impose vouchers on Shelby and Davidson counties despite the desires of representatives from those areas? So I'll start with, we need to change our student formula uh, to a weighted formula where essentially the students who need the most get the resources that they need. So right now our formula is that every kid gets the same amount. And if you have special like identifiers that are in your individualized educational plans, then that could trigger additional funding and support. But broadly speaking, when I served at Frazier Elementary School, most of my kids qualified for an IEP. So most of the students in my building have substantial needs and were not reading and writing and doing math on grade level. So a Weighted formula is what we need. Our per pupil funding is right at about $10,000. I can tell you that's not enough money. When you look at places that are getting transformative outcomes for kids, their per pupil funding is somewhere between, you know, $15,000 to $20,000 per student. So we shouldn't be putting $527 million in a rainy day fund because if today is not a rainy day, I don't know what is. We need to put money into our public education system via a weighted formula for students. The other part of that is that as we talk about what, you know, reimagining education and what that needs to look like right now, you know, our supermajority has decided that it's better to save a few kids than to save all kids. It's essentially what vouchers do. It says that, you know, take this coupon, go to a private school, hope that they have the, the resources, the supports and systems that you need to be successful. And oftentimes, you know, I've spent some time in private schools visiting and touring those buildings to better understand what are they doing with students. They usually don't have the supports for our most exceptional students or students that are in special education. So I say all that to say we have to move away from just a patch fix, say, some kids and instead take that $527 million and do what is right and put it into education, especially now that teachers and students have to go back to buildings that are not safe, that were underfunded before the pandemic. Thank you for that. I actually think the rainy day fund is up over a billion dollars now, but your point is well taken. Gabby, let's go to you. Education in the area. How would you like to see it change if, if at all? And also about... Vouchers. Sorry, I said I was going to mute you and I didn't. Uh, vouchers and the imposition of it on your district when they actually don't want it for their own. Yeah, so District 97 has some of the best performing schools in the state. Uh, so the effort to try to defund our public schools through a voucher system, I think, is uh, unacceptable. Uh, and no one representing 97 should ever be in favor of. Um, so I was glad to see Jim Coley vote against it. However, uh, I think one of the things that we haven't talked about is that it's unconstitutional. What they're doing is unconstitutional. Um, and therefore, uh, they have basic, they lack basic understanding of uh, our, our, our constitution here uh, in our country. Regarding education, absolutely, we need to put more funds into public education right now every teacher spends an average of $600 of their own money to fund the needs of their classroom. And that is unacceptable. Um, I believe in community schools with wraparound services. Um, and there's other uh, solutions that we can come up to support parents in the education system that are also outside of the school. So for example, uh, paid paternity leave when a child is born, because we know that having both parents at home when a child is born will set up a kid for success. 
um, my friend Gloria Johnson sponsored a bill that would give parents four hours um, of work, four hours off of work so that a parent can attend those IEP meetings, attend those parent teacher conferences. So those are some ways we can support parents uh, in making sure that their kids are being set up for success from the beginning. Thank you, Gabby. Alan, let's go to you. Same question about ways to reform education in the area and also a commitment to oppose those dreaded vouchers. Um, <clears throat> standing against the vouchers has been one of my one of the the, the uh, main parts of uh, my platform since I since I ran in 2018. Uh, utterly unconstitutional, as Gabby said, uh, and uh, beyond that, just utterly ridiculous. And it, and it, and in reality, it's a it's a back uh, it's a backdoor uh, moving uh, towards uh, a continuation of school segregation. It's utterly uh, evil. It's utterly racist, and you can tell. Um, in the way, in, in what two counties uh, that they uh, that they picked, uh, the, the the two Democratic strongholds in in uh, Tennessee were the only two uh, counties that they deemed uh, worthy of their uh, of their school uh, exper their school experiment. Um, I was I was proud to be raised uh, in public schools in in, in Bartlett and a part of this district, and we had an absolutely uh, I've received an absolutely amazing education. Um, and what I what I want more than anything else is to continue the idea of community schools, local schools, and schools that are um, run by um, Shelby Countyans and not not by uh, uh, Betsy DeVos's uh, handpicked uh, uh, puppet in Penny Schwinn. Thank you, Clifford. Over to you. Education reform in the area and voucher opposition. Yes or no? I am in opposition of the voucher bill. It is, as my colleague said, unconstitutional. Um, and I believe that uh, as it relates to education reform, we need to focus on funding uh, our, our public schools and we need to be focused on funding uh, high quality public seats. And that means making sure that we are paying teachers a livable wage uh, and giving them the raise that they deserve. Um, as a teacher in the classroom myself, uh, starting off, uh, it, it could it can be very difficult um, and you do spend upwards of $600, I can attest, uh, on, on just making sure your students have what they need to get through the school year. Uh, we're just focused on making sure that uh, we're working across the aisle to pass legislation that is going to give our teachers a raise, that is going to fund our public schools. We have some of the best public schools in District 97, and we want to continue that options, those options. We also want to continue to make sure that families have options um, and that students understand and community members understand that charter schools are public schools. We need to make sure that that's focused on as well. Um, so as it relates to education reform, I'm a proponent of high quality seats and how we get there is should be determined by the community and we should have wraparound services. Um, I have worked with organizations to fund uh, institutions to provide those wraparound uh, services and make sure that our communities serve as a hub uh, for those who live there and focusing in on how we can make sure that uh, our families have the services uh, that they need to be able to survive and that our schools are thriving. Okay, so let's turn to healthcare. You pretty much all said that Medicaid expansion is a part of your platform. We reject a billion dollars a year in yearly funds of our own tax dollars by not expanding. Let's start with you, Gabby. Uh, I'm basically just giving each of you an opportunity to vent about Medicaid expansion. Go right ahead. So yeah, I think uh, there is a difference between saying the right things and actually putting actions behind it. Um, every time Medicaid has been 
has been on the table since 2014. I have been up in Nashville at every single committee meeting special session that has been called because it is important, not only for District 97, but for all of Tennessee. Um, that And that's the bare minimum, right? Getting Medicaid expansion is the bare minimum. It's not gonna solve all our problems, but it is the bare minimum, especially in the middle of a pandemic. And I really don't know what Bill Lee's waiting for. He has the executive power right now because we are in a state of emergency to get it done. Um, and frankly, I don't care if he gets it done by himself or if he does it with the legislature, we just need to get it done. Beyond that, um, I think I'm the only person proposing a two-prong Medicaid expansion um, proposal. The second one would be a public option of Medicaid that would compete with our uh, private insurance um, so that people aren't dependent on their work-sponsored health care. Um, so that's what I am proposing for care. We need to make sure that we're taking care of our people. Right now, our system has been destabilized through the, the Trump tax reform that made sure that uh, the mandate, the healthcare mandate was going away. So we're gonna have a huge rise in premiums and we need to make sure that we're providing solutions for our state. So just to be clear, you, you're you saying a public option, a state-sponsored public option. Gotcha. Yes. Okay, thank you. Uh, Ruby, let's go to you. Medicaid expansion, why or why not? Mo mostly why? Yep. So <laughs> I also support the Medicaid expansion. My take on it is a little bit different. So both of my parents are gone. And how I come to understand about the Medicaid expansion was that we had to sell off all of my mother's assets. Now, my mother was a public school teacher for almost 40 years and passed out in the classroom because she struggled with hypertension. And one of the side effects of her hypertension medicine is damage to her kidney. So my mother spent the last 10 years on dialysis. And in order for us to get the additional support we needed, we had to sell her assets. And so while I haven't spent time in Nashville every committee meeting, I did have a parent who in her last days of life, I had to see that she was a public servant and the system failed her. Um, my father was a veteran who passed away in the veterans hospital. And so I got a chance to see up close and personal what is happening with our veterans and their healthcare system. So the need to expand Medicaid is more than just because it's the right thing to do. It's also because we are losing pe people are losing their lives and families are losing intergenerational wealth because the current system requires you to sell off assets. And when you think about, you know, black Latino families that typically don't have the same amount of wealth and resources that white families have in our country. It has uh, it just hits differently, as the young folks say. Right. So for me, I want to see a Medicaid expansion. But I'm also very transparent that as long as we have a GOP supermajority, one person out of 97, we can fight. We can say that this needs to happen. But the bottom line is we need to take more seats in our state as Democrats to get us on a path to make this happen and to continue to put public opinion pressure on the current leadership. Because before COVID-19, we didn't always have public opinion on our side. I've spent hundreds of hours at the polls the last couple of weeks talking to folks and not everyone in our district is excited about Medicaid expansion because they're concerned about, well, what is it gonna be the financial impact on me? I have right. health insurance. So those are things that we have to navigate. And when I think about our district and what's best for our district and for our state, it is taking into account all the nuance and putting forth legislation as a first step that can get passed because it does require the vote of other legislators across the state and rural communities. And I believe because of COVID-19, we'll now have the data and the public opinion on our side to move the ball down the field. Alan, let's go to you. Medicaid expansion, what are your thoughts and how upset are you? Um, I'm livid. <clears throat> but um, when it comes to this issue, um, we're not going to pass uh, we're not going to pass Medicaid expansion unless we uh, begin to uh, con uh, con convince a few Republicans to, to come along. 
and you know we, we, it's uh, and uh, you know what uh, within this district we're not uh, it's, it's very difficult to win this issue with if, unless we actually convince a few people who uh, tend to vote with folks with an R next to their name uh, to act, to actually vote for one of these candidates on the screen right now. And what I've what I've discovered is this: you know, Medicaid expansion to me uh, is a moral issue uh, because you know, two hundred and fifty. Uh, 250,000 folks would receive health care and, and those uh, 13 to 14 hospitals have closed across Tennessee. But as someone who's knocked on the door of thousands of folks who, uh, who normally don't vote for someone uh, in our party, looking someone in the eye and saying that on average, uh, as a t a, a Tennesseans are spending 9% more on monthly health insurance premiums than folks in other states who have expanded Medicaid, that's uh, the reason why they they changed their minds. That's the reason why I, I was able to receive so many Republican votes when I ran in 2018. It, it, there's a difference between what makes us passionate uh, about this issue and what what uh, will bring folks along who normally uh, vote the other way. And I think that uh, it, it's it's amazing to have that passion, to have that uh, reason to move to move forward. But it's also uh, taking the time to convince folks who who don't normally agree. Uh, with with, uh, uh, with this issue. Thanks, Alan. Clifford, how do you wrap up the Medicaid Thank expansion you. situation here? I think it's very difficult um, that we're talking about people in the margins uh, who do not have access to health care insurance through their jobs. Um, we're talking about um, elderly people. We're talking about children without insurance coverage. And so it's important to focus on um, the fact that right now, Tennesseans are losing out on over $26 billion in, by not expanding Medicaid. Um, Tennessean residents will pay $7.8 billion in federal taxes that will be used to fund Medicaid expansion in other states, um, you know, while, while we don't have Medicaid expansion in our own state. I think it's important when we talk about reaching across the aisle, helping um, our, our rural Tennesseans um, to understand that this impacts your neighbor, this impacts um, the nursing home near, near your job, this impacts people that you care about. Uh, we need to make sure that we're focusing on what the bottom line is and what the fiscal note of, um, you know, passing and expanding Medicaid in the state of Tennessee means uh, for Tennesseans and our bottom line and, and the ability to lower those health insurance premiums. Um, when we reach across the aisle, outlining to our Republican colleagues, um, you know, if we don't expand Medicaid in the state of Tennessee, um, you know, we can start to really feel the impact, especially during COVID-19, where people don't have access to the health insurance co coverage. Um, so we have the data, we have the support, we have the public support, as my colleague has said. Uh, we need to make sure that we're accelerating and uh, working across the aisle to pass legislation that's going to expand Medicaid in the state of Tennessee. It's imperative. Well, there actually is a bipartisan bill up there. So hopefully whichever one of you gets up there can help push it forward. We lose a billion dollars a year every year. We don't do it. We're at the bottom. Absolutely. Infant mortality, maternal mortality. Uh, the list goes on. Number one in medical bankruptcies. Anyway, uh, I want to talk about a couple of things that are under attack that you will come to find if you're up there. The first, and we're going to start with the women here for obvious reasons, women's reproductive freedom is under attack here with Republicans passing draconian bills to force women to, among other things, carry their rapist child to term. Uh, will you stand up for women's reproductive freedom? And what are your thoughts on the heartbeat bill that just passed that has already been blocked by a judge? Ruby, let's start with you. 
So I am not sure why in the state of Tennessee we are wasting money on legislation and passing bills that we know are unconstitutional and being struck down. Similar legislation being passed in other states has been struck down. So uh, I, I'm not sure why we are again prioritizing that. Um, the other thing that I think is you know important is that we're spending a lot of time talking about abortion itself. And as a woman, that is like one aspect of like the overall health of our reproductive system. And I think we actually do a disservice when we don't talk about this is about expanding affordable health care for people based on what their physical needs might be. Um, I think that, you know, we spend so much time talking about abortion, but in actuality, it's about making sure that, you know, whenever a woman needs to make a health care choice, she needs to be able to make that choice. And, and a legislator who is not in a room with her, her doctor and her husband should not be involved. That's just a simple answer to it. Um, the other thing is, I think we need to simply elect more women to the General Assembly. I think we would not see so much terrible legislation around this issue if we had more people who are actually directly impacted by it making the legislation. So my opinion on it is this, you know, at the end of the day, I am pro-choice, not because it's about abortion specifically, but because I want women to have access to the health care that we need. And we have too many young women who are walking around who don't get the health care that they need. And as a result, it is penalizing us. And the second part of that is we simply need to elect more women to the General Assembly. So we stop focusing on terrible legislation and start punishing the bad actors that keep proposing this legislation, even though it has been struck down as unconstitutional. Gabby, how about you? How are your feelings about reproductive freedom in Tennessee and in general and the bill that just passed recently. Yeah. Um, so I want to just emphasize what it's, what is at stake in this election, not only at our local level, but at uh, the federal level as well. Uh, in 2014, we had amendment one on the ballot. I worked on that campaign to make, to try to defeat that amendment measure. Um, it passed. So that means that women in our state do not have protections um, because we changed our state constitution. Therefore, we are totally reliant on the federal protections that we ha have and that which are holding on by a threat at the moment. Um, I firmly believe that these are private decisions that belong between a woman, her doctor and her faith with uh, her family as well, with consult from her from their family. Um, so that's where I stand on the issue. And. I have worked in this aspect of healthcare for over a decade. And um, I think we really need to make sure that we elect people that are right on the issue down from up from president down to our city council people. Clifford, as the first man to speak on this, will you stand with women and their reproductive freedom and your thoughts on the lawsuit that Governor Lee just signed in the law? Absolutely. Um, it's, it's most certainly unconstitutional. Um, and I believe we will, we will continue to see that. Uh, I believe it's a, it's a woman's right personally to make decisions regarding her health care uh, and her body uh, with the consultation of a health care professional um, and her father and her, uh, and her husband. I believe in that. Um, it's not the government's role uh, to infringe upon a woman's rights. I, I, I can't, as the first man to speak, uh, truly begin to empathize um, with how uh, women have been uh, treated during this process. And I do agree we need representation in our state legislature um, that can that can stipulate to those views. Um, I believe that it is a woman's right to choose. Uh, I am a, a, a pro-choice candidate, uh, but I also believe that th these are issues that the government um, should not have a part in. These are issues that um, people who run for political office should not be debating. Uh, these should be issues that are debated and consulted through uh, healthcare professionals and family members involved. Alan, same question to you. 
<clears throat> well, in 2018, um, my, myself, along with uh, Gabby Salinas, when she was running for uh, a different seat, uh, were top tier endorsed candidates by Tennessee Ad Advocates for Planned Parenthood. And uh, I, I firmly stand. Uh, I'm, I'm pro-choice and pro-reproductive uh, pro freedom. Um, let's, let's, let's discuss why this absolutely unconstitutional um, uh, uh, bill was passed. It was, it was passed so that the Republican incumbents in our state legislature and our state Senate uh, could, win, could score points in their primaries when they, when they knew that they upset many of their constituents who, uh, although Republican, are pro-public pro education. It was done for no other reason. It will cost our state millions of dollars to defend a, a, a bill that is, uh, uh, they know is 100% unconstitutional. And I ask that any state legislator who voted for this horrific bill, who stands by this horrific bill, that they be, that they be made to, to look in the eyes of a 14-year-old victim of rape and tell them that they have to, uh, to carry that fetus to term utterly disgusting and it, it, it has to be uh, we have to stand firmly against it okay staying on the subject of things under attack i'm gonna ask you what i think are clearly two separate issues that we could spend a lot of time on each but i'm gonna ask them as one question uh two communities that are regularly under attack in tennessee are our immigrant communities and our lgbt folks I just want to go around and give you each an opportunity to express that you either agree or disagree that, you know, LGBT and immigrant rights are human rights. Let's start with you, Clifford. I believe the LGBTQIA and um, immigration rights are human rights. I don't believe that our municipal and local law enforcement agencies should work in collaboration with federal immigration enforcement agencies. Uh, I believe that these are civil rights um, that we are currently on the front line fighting for. Um, and it is a mistake to minimize uh, those rights, just like the Black Lives Matter movement into one um, small movement. These are overall human rights that we've been fighting for for such a long time. And I think it's important that we focus in on uh, continuing that fight and making sure we're protecting all, all humans and all people uh, in our city and in Shelby County. Ruby, over to you. And I just want to remind people that this has just happened recently that we saw a anti-LGBTQ adoption bill signed by the governor, despite the governor having a sister who is married to a woman, which doesn't come up very much. Not a lot of people know that, but it's true. Ruby, how are your feelings about the communities under attack in Tennessee? Yep. So I am a supporter and ally of the LGBTQ community. Um, and so and also I attended school uh, undergraduate studies at, at the University of Florida. And so I had a lot of friends who came from other places, other countries for a better life here and saw firsthand how, you know, just just injustice. I'll just say that. So I say all that to say, I think that as we think about our state, and what it means to be a 21st century place to live, a place where people from all over the country and all over the world want to live here, it has to be a safe place for folks. And you know, we have a history of marginalizing people. And again, as we talk about moving forward and what does it mean to be a country that is welcoming to all people, you know, we have to not just say, okay, we protect the rights of some, but not others. You know, if someone is working in our country, 
paying taxes and they are a, you know, contributing and a part of our economy, they shouldn't be marginalized. You know, taxation without representation is what kicked all of this off, you know, hundreds of years ago. So I am an ally. And I think at this juncture, again, I'll keep coming back to it. We simply have to elect more people to the General Assembly who are, you know, sensitive about the issues, who are empathetic leaders and who don't, who actually want to be on the right side of this human rights fight. Gabby, same question to you about two communities regularly under attack here, immigrants and the LGBT folks. Will you stand with them? Yeah, so in 2019, I participated in the TEP uh, Date of Action, the Tennessee Equality Project. And I was in one of the committee meetings when the adoption bill was being heard. Um, and I tried to meet with my legislators while I was up there. Uh, one of them wouldn't meet with me, so I caught him and chased him down uh, at the committee meeting <laughs> to make sure that he knew where we stood on the issue. Um, I think how you get there, how you get to this, these positions matter. We don't have to wait to be elected officials to have strong positions on these issues. Um, I only use consultants that have strong language and protections for LGBT people written into their policies um, because it's important to me. Um, I have hired LGBT people um, in both of my campaigns. Um, and then when it, because I think, you know, all of us, um, this is a human rights issue, right? Um, and that leads me into our immigrant rights. These are human rights issues. When I ran in 2018, um, I had the privilege of having the endorsement of PERC, the Tennessee Immigrants and Refugees Rights Coalition. I'm actually wearing a shirt right now that says immigrants vote. <laughs> you can't really see it very well. Um, and I face dog whistle attacks for being an immigrant. You know, I'm the only uh, immigrant woman that's running right now. And I would be one of the first Latinas ever elected to this Tennessee legislature. And I think now it's a perfect time to show us and to show the people who we are as a nation. We are a nation of immigrants and that our leadership needs to reflect that. Um, so I hope that I can count on your vote to make that happen. Alan, same question to you. Uh, what the the, uh, the what you're talking about though is is two communities that uh, have something very in common, and they are the the, the scapegoats of um, uh, uh, Republicans needing to win in primaries. And utterly uh, 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 terrible that uh, our our uh, the other party will will, will use such uh, dog whistles uh, in order to get uh, in order to get reelected in their primaries. Um, this issue is very, uh, both of these issues are very uh, personal for me, uh, but when it comes to LGBT uh, issues, growing up at uh, and going to school at, at, at Bartlett Elementary High School, I had a good friend uh, named Warren Turkle, and we were very close, very close friends. 30 years later, I, I now know that person to be Wren, and she's very important to me, and, and uh, a huge reason why I was always fight for not just the LGB, but the, also the T. Um, I think we, we have a tendency to forget forget that letter when we when we talk about that issue, and I will will always be a, a huge ally, uh, whether elected or as as a citizen. Great. Now I want to ask uh, about a general question. It's more of a personality type question, but this is a very divided legislature that you're running to go be a part of. There seems to be a balance that incumbents or Democrats up there need to strike between being vocal about the things that they care about, but also trying to pass legislation in a TNG 
OP supermajority environment. How do you think you will thrive or not thrive in a situation where you're forced to work across the aisle while also feeling so passionately about these progressive issues? And, you know, do you feel like that's something that you're going to have to work on or do you feel like you're cut out for that? Let's start with you, Gabby. Sure. Again, um, I don't think these are things that you can start working on once you get there. You have to already be working on them because how you get there matters. Um, I have already um, started on this, right? Jim Coley and I, every time I'm in Nashville, we meet. And I meet with, you know, not only my elected officials, but everyone I'm that um, that is available. I try to meet with other, everyone, Republican or Democrat. Um, and then also here at the local level, I think I'm the only person that has sat down and met with the Nash, uh, sorry, with the Bartlett mayor, uh, who is a Republican. Um, but him and I are longtime friends and we were talking about education and safety um, because, you know, Bartlett is ranked among the, the most safest uh, cities in the nation. So we were talking about how can we work this out and what can we learn um, from our municipalities that are here in Shelby County. Um, so I have already started uh, meeting with the elected officials. And then the second part of that is the electorate. My campaign has made over 22,000 calls and that included two Republicans. And we had wonderful conversations when the pandemic hit. And we called them and we said, hey, what do you need? Are you okay? Do you need a mask? Uh, we delivered over 300 masks. And that gave us the opportunity to have these conversations before uh, we're even in this position, right? Um, and that's what it's going to take. It's going to take a leader to reach out um, and say, hey, how can we work together? And are you okay? Are your needs being met? And if not, how can we work together to make them happen? One of my proudest um, achievements is that in the hardest time, in the most divisive time in our country, when I ran in 2018, I was able to bring people together. Thank you, Gabby. Ruby, let's go to you. Uh, just to reiterate the question, it's a house divided. It's not easy for Democrats to work across the aisle on their issues when they're also being loud and vocal about the things that they care about. Uh, how do you feel you're going to be able to strike that balance? Yeah, so I'll do as I've always done. So as I shared, I've grown up, I grew up in rural Louisiana. Uh, David Duke actually had a headquarters in my hometown. Lovely. So I know what it's like to live with a grand wizard as your elected official. Um, I attended college at the University of Florida when Jeb Bush was governor. So I served under a Republican governor with the Florida Students Association when we were working to take uh, race out of admissions for the 10 public universities. And I had to represent all of the students who were in those 10 universities. And so I'll do as I've always done. I mean, in education, it's a nonpartisan, right? And so you work with every single person who comes to the door. You don't get the luxury of asking, well, what is your political affiliation as they register their child for your school? So I'll do as I've always done. You treat people with a level of respect. You're an empathetic leader and you're a listener. At the end of the day, a lot of what we're talking about is going to be very expensive. And you have to prioritize what it is that you actually want to get done in that legislative session. Because if a Democrat walks in with a ton of bills that cost a ton of money in a state that values being fiscally conservative, then the conversation, they might entertain you and then your bill die in committee. Um, and so I think that it's important that, you know, whoever is, you know, ultimately selected for this seat, one of the things that, you know, to keep in mind is that when you head up there, we can make a lot of promises, but this legislative session coming up, the special session mentioned, um, as well as the 2021 session, is going to be about making sure we get this economy back on track after COVID-19. 
that is going to be the number one priority. And so as long as legislation is building on that and taking care of people across West Tennessee, I believe, again, that public opinion is on our side and we'll be able to get some people to come to the table in ways that they probably were not interested or unwilling to do so before this moment. Alan, over to you. Um, so I, I think it's, it's very important. Like I said before, I, I, I uh, you know, uh, I've knocked on thousands of doors of folks who don't normally vote for, for our party. And I think it's very important to uh, discover the reasons why folks who don't normally uh, vote in, in a line for you uh, will, will get behind get, get behind those issues. As I said, with Medicaid expansion, uh, we need to emphasize the, the, the personal costs of, of not expanding Medicaid. When it comes to issues like uh, predatory lending, uh, you know, the reason why I'm so concerned of it is I, I know so many folks have been hurt by those quote unquote businesses. But I also know that those the, those businesses uh, do negatively affect property values and are uh, connected with the uptick of, of a small level crime. I think uh, the, 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 the what what we have to do uh, as a, a part of the minority party in Tennessee is to find the the, the reasoning um, that uh, conservative uh, representatives can get behind. And I think the issues uh, that we are running on are good enough um, that uh, it. It, uh, we can get it done. Clifford, final answer to this question. How do you feel about joining a house divided and will it be tough to reach across the aisle? Absolutely. You know, I think, you know, we have so much in common, more than we have different. And reaching across the aisle is really focusing on making sure we can highlight what's in common uh, and get legislation passed uh, and through committee and on the floor and voted. Uh, and that means making sure, especially in a time where we have to be fiscally responsible and we're dealing in a pandemic where uh, our economy has shrunk and we need to focus on what the bottom line is. We have to make sure and we have to be clear. Um, I'm a solutions oriented human being. Um, there's not a problem I can't solve. What I know, I amplify. Uh, what I don't know, I search to find. And searching to find that common ground is where we're going to be able to get legislation through in a, in a Republican led majority. Right. We have to focus in on that. Um, I'm willing to go the extra mile uh, for districts of District 97 residents. Um, so, you know, they sleep at night knowing that their concerns are being addressed. You know, I, I was a special education teacher. And the first thing uh, that we did at the tech conference table with the principal and the school leader and sometimes the superintendent was talk about the, the concern. Right. What is the primary concern? And right now, our primary concerns are jobs, our economy and our education system. And how do we address those concerns? Um, and we want to find common sense solutions uh, that we can get Republicans to go along with uh, and make sure that we're using uh, the voice and amplifying the advocacy of the community members and creating uh, an engagement process where they can speak their voice. They can come to Nashville um, once this pandemic uh, is at a rate where that's safe. You know, they can come to Nashville and voice their concerns. Um, we don't have to do it alone as legislators. You know, our constituents really have a voice and we have to do our best to amplify and elevate that voice. Okay. Now, just as a, we're going to close this out here pretty soon. You guys are all doing great. Uh, I really appreciate you all being here again. We're at tnholler.com. You'll be able to find the audio of this on our iTunes podcast feed and the video will also live on, on our website and on our social media feeds. I want to ask each of you on a more personal note, what do you look to for inspiration and what inspired you to get into politics in the first place? It can be people, it can be people around you, famous figures, whatever it is. But I just want to know, like, what's who's somebody that inspires you to do what you're doing? Ruby, let's start with you. Yes. So I was actually inspired to get into politics by my mother. 
Uh, she was a classroom teacher for almost 40 years and never would pursue a leadership role, but rather she was much more of a servant leader and believed that you know people should do the right thing and you need to take care of folks in your community. And so she's gone now, uh, as I've shared. And so I dedicate my entire run to my mom. Um, sorry, I didn't expect that. Um, oh. But I, she inspires me to be you know stronger every day. She raised five girls by herself because uh, my dad passed when I was 13 and she continued to serve students and families in, you know, in the classroom. And then once she got sick, she still continued to play music and serve the community seven days a week for the next 10 years. And so when I think about my own leadership style, it is inspired by the service of my mother and it is inspired by the 19 other women in my immediate family, three generations of college graduates, three generations of business owners. My parents were born in 1942 and 1944, respectively. They proved what was possible when people like me were not going and graduating from college. And so I'm inspired by the work and the stories that they told me. And I hope to embody that and more in my bid to be state representative for District 97. Thank you. Clifford, how about you? Who or what inspires you or inspired you to run? What are you drawing for inspiration here? Um, I'm going to take a Miss Ruby Dennis Powell approach and say it's really all of those things, right? It's my, my mother uh, fought hard for our education. She fought hard for our ability to understand what our rights were. Uh, and I took that fight to the classroom and I made sure that I understood that the students that I served understood what their rights are and they understood what their role in civics responsibilities were. Um, I think that's very important. But also my grandfather, the first black leader at the Chamber of Commerce, who brought tens of thousands of jobs to Memphis, Tennessee, um, Nike, Delta, Williams and Sonoma. Uh, Birmingham Steel, we, we're focused on as a legacy, making sure that Tennesseans have a better quality of life. Uh, and he did that by uh, traveling across our country and across the world to be a cheerleader for Memphis, Tennessee, and make sure that we were fighting for all the great opportunities that we see here today. Uh, but he was also fighting not just uh, for, for, for black rights or human rights. He was fighting for all rights of uh, ours in Shelby County to have a prosperous place to, place to live. Um, you know, my mother uh, is, a, is a teacher in Bartlett right now, and she's focused on right now preparing her virtual classroom uh, for the students that she's serving. And she's focused on making sure that just like she did for us uh, years ago, my, my siblings and I, um, that the best opportunities possible uh, are what we're fighting for. Uh, for our family. And I'm hoping that uh, as a, a District 97 resident and as a candidate for District 97 Tennessee House of Representatives that I can earn the vote of the constituents. Mr. Creasy, how do you draw, who do you draw on for inspiration here? Um, so I, uh, I've, uh, since graduating from University of Memphis, I've, I've worked uh, mainly as a bartender. And uh, so many of the, the stereotypes of my particular vocation are true. One of them is um, that we, it's, it's our job to listen to folks' problems and it's our, and, uh, and that's what I do on a daily basis. And, you know, a lot of the times uh, the discussion is about a girlfriend or a boyfriend or um, the, the Grizzlies uh, losing two in a row, which is really frustrating right now, um, or uh, issues like that, are, uh, like that. But many times people are, concerned about their health care, they're concerned about their, their, their children's education, they're concerned about taking a loan from, from, a, from a predatory lender. And I got tired of looking um, people that I really have grown to care about in the eyes and not being able to do anything about it. Just being able to, uh, so I had to stand up and I had to do something. And uh, at first it was uh, volunteering my services to help uh, local nonprofits uh, fundraise. And I did that quite well. Um, were able to raise, uh, uh, along with my, my good friend uh, David Parks, uh, uh, over $30,000 as, 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 as part of, 
as part of uh, uh, bartending for uh, choices uh, uh, several years ago. But nonprofits are only a drop in the bucket compared to what government can do, what government should do. And so I take inspiration from, from, every, from every person who's ever told me about their problems. Great, thank you. Gabby, how about you? Who do you draw on for inspiration? Yeah, my inspiration is my mom. Uh, and so my family abandoned everything we had back home so that I could come here to Memphis to be treated. Um, when I was treated, the survival rate for cancer was only 20%. Uh, it was thanks to the fight of my parents that we found St. Jude. You know, this was before the internet was around. And um, while I was here, my father passed away and my mom was left paralyzed. And during that time, she was pregnant in a country where she didn't speak the language. And it was thanks to her fight, her drive, her resilience that we made it. And I bring that same resilience to this campaign and I will bring that same resilience to Thank the you. state legislature. Really good answers, you guys. We're coming to the end of it here. Before I go around and give you all a chance to close out, I just want to ask you a question very quickly. Do you commit to being accessible to your constituents and participating in forums like this throughout your successful careers? Let's start with you, Gabby. Absolutely. And um, if I'm elected, I can't wait to have uh, the first town hall. <laughs> we haven't had a, a town hall in this area in forever. And I don't only want to have one. I want to have more. Marsha Blackburn hasn't had a town hall since February of 2017. I like to say that as often as I can. Ruby, how about you? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and I'll continue to do as I've been doing. You know, our team has sent out thousands of text messages. Uh, if you follow me on social media, I am always in the comments. Um, and so I definitely commit to not only just staying connected with folks, my undergrad degree is from the College of Journalism. So I also think that, you know, democracy is dependent on strong journalism, like the work that the Memphis Holler is doing. Um, and so, yes, I commit to that, having forums and also being open and vanguard about how do we stay in community with folks? Because COVID-19 is not going away anytime soon. And like I've done on the campaign trail, I did not once power down my campaign. Instead, when we realized the pandemic was happening, my healthcare policy lead, who is an, a board certified emergency room physician, we got on social media. We did a live to make sure that we were talking to people. We haven't slowed down a beat since this has started. This is how we roll and this is what we will continue to do. Fantastic. Clifford, how about you? Will you be accessible? Absolutely. I will be accessible. Um, I believe we're going to continue to have town halls, regardless of if we win this or not. We're going to continue to be able to engage the community. Our campaign has been excited. Uh, we've been excited to talk with people virtually. We've been excited to talk to people in person in a safe and socially distant way. We've been excited to go uh, and meet with folks at the polls. Uh, we have not powered down our campaign either. We've been fighting hard for the constituents of District 97. And the focus is making sure that we're continuing the engagement and continuing the discussion. And not only that, that we're engaging and encouraging people who have a, a story and who want to represent their community to be engaging and do so. Uh, I believe that the focus that we have to do is that we have the thing that we have to focus on is making sure that this isn't an inaccess inaccessible process. We have to make sure that um, we're accessible. I got a call this morning. It was 630 um, from a young lady uh, who was returning one of our phone calls. Uh, we've also sent out uh, thousands of calls and messages. And so uh, we had a 40-minute conversation about what her concerns were. Um, and, we, and we addressed those concerns and how we would help find jobs and opportunities, how we would 
uh, fight to eliminate crime in the areas uh, that, that they are occurring and making sure that we are creating safer communities for people um, and continue that discussion. Just driving down the street, seeing a problem and, and addressing it. There's trash, there's debris, there are tires. We, we're going to go and pick those up. We're going to get a group of team, a team of a group of people together to pick those things up and make sure that we're in an efficient way, uh, improving our community, whether we're elected or not. We're going to continue this fight and this does not stop on August 6th, but I do ask folks to come out on August 6th. Alan, how about you? Will you be accessible? Absolutely. In the, in the three years I've been running for this seat, uh, both in 2018 and to this to, to this day, I placed my phone number on every uh, uh, every piece of mail. Uh, I have been, and unfortunately have been able to help um, utilizing my good friend Dwayne Thompson, who uh, represents the district of, uh, of southeast of here, uh, in, in order to help folks who have had difficulty uh, receiving their unemployment benefits to finally receive them. And so, um, I. The, the the best way that I can prove that I'm accessible is to is to give everyone my phone number, 901-503-1889. So if you're a constituent of, of District 97, please call me, please text me. Uh, I want to be the most accessible state representative that, that, that you can possibly have. And before we close out, just one thing that's occurring to me, and we'll just make it a yes or no, do you each commit to supporting whoever comes out of this primary, Clifford, in an active way? Clifford, start with you. Absolutely. Yes. Ruby. In an active way, in an active way. I plan to be out after August 6th supporting those folks. Ruby. Yes. Gabby. This race is bigger than me. A democratic victory is what's most important. So yes. And Mr. Creasy. 100%. Yes. Okay. I'm going to give you all a chance to close out right now. Again, deeply appreciate you all doing this. I'm thrilled that we did it. I know it was a long time in the making. I think it's going great. You'll tell me afterward whether or not I'm right about that, but you're each going to get 60 seconds now to close out and tell folks why it should be you in the general election to represent this district. And I would suggest focusing on what sets you apart. Gabby, let's go with you first. Sure. I'm a cancer survivor. I, the, to me, this issue is personal. Healthcare is personal. And I am the strongest person position as a scientist. I have a responsibility to give back to a community that gave me a chance at life. And now is my turn to use my talents to help us come out of this pandemic and make sure that every citizen in our state has an opportunity to make their dreams come true. So I'm asking for your vote, I'm asking for your prayers, and I'm asking for your support. Thank you, Gabby. And that was a good length, too. Clifford. Absolutely. I have um, four little ones that live in District 97, and I have worked with our teachers in District 97, our leaders in District 97. My name is Clifford Stockton III. I'm a Democratic candidate for the Tennessee House of Representatives District 97. On Election Day, which is this coming Thursday, August 6th, we have an opportunity to vote for better schools. We have an opportunity to, to vote for safer communities. We have an opportunity to vote for an advocate in Medicaid expansion. Your voice is your voice. Is your, your voice is your vote. And I look forward to seeing and hearing you at the polls. My name is Clifford Stockton. We appreciate you coming in today. Perfect. Alan Creasy, your final argument. Um, <clears throat> I uh, thank you so much for to the Tennessee Holler for for hosting this. I, I really appreciate all that y'all do, and and uh, I really appreciate y'all y'all hollering for for what's right uh, in Tennessee. I uh, 
I was the first Democrat to run for this office in, in 16 years in 2018. We knocked on over 20,000 doors. We raised over $100,000 and we fought hard. And we came within five points of flipping this district, a district that had been considered to be so red that no Democrat had, uh, had, had wanted to run for it uh, in, in, in over a decade. I believe in constituent service and I will be uh, the most successful state representative that you have. Uh, my phone number again is 901-503-1889. Please call me. Uh, I, I want to help you uh, uh, in whatever ways that I possibly can, what, what, from, a, from a stop sign to a red light, uh, uh, to getting unemployment benefits, uh, to, uh, to ensuring that your stimulus check actually comes on time. Uh, thank you. My name is Alan Creasy, candidate for Tennessee House District 97. And before we go to Ruby, what drink do you make the best, Alan? Uh, <laughs> um, I, I pour a pretty mean Guinness. I've worked in right. an Irish pub for, for more, more, more than 15 years. Um, so, uh, and I've, uh, I've actually uh, had the ability to go to Dublin and, uh, get taught by the, uh, uh, by the masters. So All right, that takes patience. Ruby, your final argument. Thank you so much for having me. So I am a candidate who has experience working with multi-million dollar budgets. I've opened a school in a school district. I provided summer school instruction to hundreds of students. I had 600 students at my last summer school institute. I've taken teachers to train on a variety of different culturally responsive models. I'm a trained diversity, equity, inclusiveness facilitator. I'm the board chair for our local school. I'm in the midst of a board of directors major bill for the Junior League of Memphis. So I say all that to say I've done a ton of change management. I was the 2018 Fogelman College of Business Outstanding Alumnus. I was awarded and recognized for my work because I am just that, a person who works. I understand budgets. I write strategic plans all the time. I'm a small business owner. I've served as an elementary school administrator. Um, you know, there are a lot of experiences that I've had and those experiences matter because when we head to Nashville and it's time to have those conversations, the doors are closed. I'll have to work to change the hearts and minds of a lot of people and get them invested in what is happening in West Tennessee. And you need to have those experiences because they matter. How do I know? Because I have to convince people all the time to do things they sometimes don't want to do. It's a part of the work that I do every day. So I'm asking for your vote because I'm experienced leadership. I'm a seasoned leader. Uh, to what Miss Selena shared, you should send in someone in Nashville if this is the first time doing something. Rather, during the midst of a global pandemic, you need someone who's going to be stable, cool-headed, very rational leadership to help get things done. And I ask for your vote, not because I'm just, you know, the only African-American woman to ever run for this seat. And when elected, I'd be just one of four black women in Nashville and only one of 13 women. But because I have the credentials, the education and the experience to get things done on behalf of our district. Thank you so much. And if you want to follow my campaign, you can go to www.rubypowelldennis.com or rpowelldennis97 on all social media platforms. And on that note, we will bring this to a close. Thank you for following. Follow the Tennessee Holler at the TN Holler on Twitter and Facebook. Also, follow the Memphis Holler at Memphis Holler on Twitter and on Facebook. They are rocking it out there, and we really appreciate you guys coming on here. I know this was a long time in the making. I know that the election is almost upon us, and I want to wish you all the best of luck. And we will see you on the other side of this thing and whoever comes out of it. I look forward to hearing from you and we look forward to following along in the general election. Thank you all for doing this. I know it's not easy and thanks for carving out the time for it. Again, follow the holler and follow all these different candidates. Have a great night. Thank you.